Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. I'm your host, Matthew O'Connell, and in each episode, I explore a topical issue concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality, or whatever you want to call it, with the help of philosophers, religious scholars, and intellectuals from a wide variety of fields, as well as practitioners and teachers, always with the intent to explore new terrain of thought and practice. That's right, we're looking for some kind of revolution here. You can download or play episodes for free at SoundCloud, iTunes and Stitcher and keep up to date with news through Twitter and Facebook. Throw comments at us, criticism, critique and suggestions for guests and topics to cover. You can also find writings, show notes and much more at posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me. If you're looking for support or help exploring practice beyond tradition in a coaching dynamic, or if you're stuck in your practice or have become disillusioned with Buddhism or some other path or practice, or if you're a secular atheist looking for some kind of way forward without religion and ridiculous beliefs, then you might want to get in touch. If any of the issues that come up in our episodes are touching, striking, or important to you, that's also the material I just love to explore. So visit O'ConnellCoaching.com for more information. Most of our episodes are sponsored by bands. Groups from Bristol, my original hometown in England, or Trieste, Italy, where I currently reside. If you like what you hear, then why not support the artist, most of whom can be discovered at Bandcamp. That's all. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to an exciting new season of the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Yes, I know, we have already started, but, well, it kind of feels exciting this time round. It feels like this year there's a bit of electricity in the air, and something important might be taking place. Now, whether this is true or not, it's anybody's guess, and I guess we'll all discover in due time. Now, this introduction serves two conversations recorded with the enigmatic... Wonderful, curious, sexy Daniel Ingram. No, I don't get to call guests that very often, do I? But in this case, why not? Daniel is a guest who came on the podcast a couple of years back already. And the conversation that we had, or the conversations rather, we had this time round are quite different from that one. You're going to hear this same introduction for both episodes. So if you've heard this already, feel free to skip forward. If not, you might like to listen in for a bit more information. Firstly, who is Daniel? Well, I imagine most of you know who he is already. But just in case you don't, I will give you a brief bio. Daniel is a recently retired emergency medicine physician from the States. He became well known in the contemporary Western Buddhist world for a number of reasons. Firstly, for his early involvement with the Buddhist Geeks podcast and friendships with Vince Horn and Kenneth Folk. For his central role in the Dharma Overground website, which is worth taking a look at, whether you're a practitioner or an academic maybe even an anthropologist looking to study unusual phenomena, well, there's plenty of that going on there. At its best, the Overground website is a community-based support and feedback site for those intensely engaging with meditation practices, with the idea to kind of wake up or achieve the end results of a path. And for many folks, that involves the kind of meditation that Daniel has done a lot of. Then there's his book, 
Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. This is quite an unusual book. It's an important book, and it's sent to ripple through the Western Dharma scene, both for its very American, pragmatic approach to Mahasi Sayadaw-style practice, but also because Daniel openly claimed to be an arahat at the time. It's even on the bloody cover. Now, that was something of a major taboo back then, though I wonder if it's so controversial anymore. Well, I guess it depends on your definition of the thing and the stock you put into that and how willing you are to talk about it outside of a given practice group. There's politics involved there, folks, however you come at it. Now, we do talk about this briefly in the first conversation for those who are curious, but in a way that you might not have heard before. Listen out for that as you go on. Discussing enlightenment critically is actually on the bucket list for this season. We did it with Dell Wright briefly, but it's a conversation topic that has a lot more in it. And I think it's one to go at at some point. Now, as with my conversations with Ken McLeod and Hokai Sabul, Daniel Ingram ended up being a conversational act in person. We spoke twice over the course of two days, and it was in my house here in Italy. This means that the conversations we have were of a different flavour to those I normally have over Skype, as you may have noticed last time round. Although this time, we had far more structure. We had a, a bit of a chance to communicate beforehand and decide on the kinds of things we wanted to talk about. And Daniel was game. He was great. He did his homework and he actually read up on quite a bit of the material that I suggested we tackle. I think this makes for two very interesting conversations, although they're quite different. In fact, committed practitioners of Buddhism and those familiar with Daniel's work will probably find the first conversation more stimulating. Certainly those with a more critical view will find things of value in the first conversation, but the second one might be slightly more intellectually stimulating. Of course, I recommend both. The reason for that is because it takes time to get into a, a flow in the conversation, build trust to kind of get a sense of what the other person is really like. If you do decide to listen to either conversation on its own, they are standalone conversations and you'll be fine either way. The first conversation is based around a set of questions I posed to Daniel and some of them were sort of crowdsourced and others kind of arrived left field. We've managed to cover quite a lot of terrain and some of it's rather geeky. It's almost two hours long so there's quite a lot there but you can kind of divide the whole thing into two parts. The first 50 minutes covers topics such as Dan's current practice, struggle and challenge in practice, retreats, teaching, mentoring, the four imponderables, magic, exploring unusual terrain, the oddities of high-level concentration, zombie brain or high-end mental athlete, which one are you, what it's like being an arhat today, and criticism of awakening. Jesus, there's a lot there, isn't there? But it kind of flows in and out, and they're all kind of interconnected, to use a nice Buddhist trope. And there's a theme that we keep returning to, or I keep returning to, which is just this recognition that a lot of the motivation for engaging with practice in the first place is one person has a bloody passion for it. And if you don't, well, this kind of stuff might not be interesting to you. Now, the second half, so we're talking about 50 minutes plus in, takes a slightly different turn. And this is a nice preparation for the second conversation. We start to talk a bit more about philosophy, David Hume, epistemology, the challenges of contemporary philosophical thought, relational approaches versus pragmatism, generation X, death, and you know the difference really between real-world practice and the ideals of practice, whether those ideals are wholly negative or wholly positive. The second conversation was recorded rather last minute before Daniel and his wife left Trieste for Florence. So we just had an hour, and more or less that's the length of that conversation. 
we talk specifically about one thing, which is a series of posts up at the speculative non-Buddhism website entitled Trash Theory. They focus on a variety of things, but they have something in common with this year's Imperfect Buddha podcast series, which is practice. Those pieces are divided up between postulates for practice, practice materials, and then a reflection usually written by Glenn Wallace. We talked not just about trash theory, but a little bit about the role of the website, the intellectual life more generally, ex-Buddhism, and much more. We did what we could with the time we had available, and I thought it was both entertaining and interesting. Daniel's willingness to engage with the ideas will come across as you listen, and he really was a good sport. In fact, so much so that we decided we would record a follow-up in which we would finish talking about the ideas of practice and the postulates in a later conversation, which has already been programmed for later this month. So you have that to look forward to if you enjoy either of the first two conversations. And if we get some nice criticism or critique in the meantime, especially from the second of these conversations, we'll try and address that too. Finally, what comes next? After the third in the series of conversations with Daniel, which may even include another conversation on Ken Wilber at some point. Yes, that needs doing, so why not with him? I will be producing a second critical turn, and it may even be specifically a political turn. Oh my God, yes, I'm going to do it. I guess I should take out some life insurance beforehand, prepare myself for attacks, both from the left and the right and that sort of thing. No, we're all very nice people here on the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Our listeners are so well-educated, I'm sure they'll say something reasonably logical, well-reasoned and thought out. And good, I'm up for that kind of thing. The purpose is to respond to a multitude of interactions I've had, well, I like to say over the last year and a half, but it's kind of been longer. The topic will no doubt annoy some, delight others, worry many, be uninteresting to some, I will do my best to avoid the easy multiple landmines and pitfalls which kind of characterise the current political discourse and landscape in the public sphere. We'll see how I do. That conversation will be divided up into three parts so you can kind of decide whether you're up for it or not and the first part will be me laying out a strong warning, lots of caveats and kind of the big picture view of where I want to go. After that you can join or just ignore the whole bloody thing and wait for the next interview with a reasonable guest. I will also be interviewing Cleo Kearns on ritual, ceremony and more later this month. You've got that to look forward to and that should be an interesting balance to the conversations with Daniel. Our last conversation with Cleo didn't make it out into the world but I can tell you that she and I quickly found ourselves in very, very interesting terrain and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. The terrain I'm looking to explore with her will be stimulating especially for those listeners who enjoy less rational, pragmatic forms of practice. Buddhism in the key of Vajrayana ceremony, ritual, dance, that kind of thing. But I also believe it will be terrain worth listening to for those more interested in mindfulness, the secular, the rational, the individualistic. You guys have a lot to learn from the world of ceremony and ritual. Don't you know we live in a highly ritualized ceremonial world already? Anyway, that's all for now. Enjoy. So welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha podcast, and this is the second conversation I'm having with Mr. Daniel Ingram. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, sir. And I feel like mentioning it's the morning because this first conversation took place last night, which for you won't make much of a difference, but for us it kind of does, I guess. And uh, we're still here in the northeast of Italy, and today we're going to be talking about, well, we're going to touch on a text that came out at the SMB site recently. Um, we decided to talk about trash theory, which 
is the third at this point in a set of articles put up by Glenn Wallace and co. And they're working on the idea of practice too. So it kind of, you know, resonates nicely with some of what we're discussing in the theme of the podcast this year. And uh, Daniel had a look at that, found it pretty lucid. And I thought, why not? Let's have a go at talking about it briefly and we'll see what comes out of it. No doubt some people will not be happy with what we have to say. Others will find it interesting, but who cares about any of that? We're going to have a go and we'll see what we find interesting. Now, the basis of this conversation, which is going to be about an hour, are two sections. One is a number of postulates put together by those folks and their readers and followers. And the second part will be a set of, well, postulates still, but for practice itself. And we're going to see what we make of those and where there may be some resonance with our conversation from before or not. So, Daniel, should we dive in? There are a number of things that are said here, and some of them are quite funny. Um, I'm tempted to go straight for the New Age apocalypse, but... (laughs) (laughs) Aren't we all? Because who wouldn't, right? Yeah, but why don't we start with the first two and see if we have anything useful to to contribute. Um, Postulate one we actually spoke briefly about casually while we were eating the other night, which is about humanism, right? And the first postulate here is that every ex-Buddhist knows that humanism is true. Now, from what I know about humanism, I mean, it's generally quite a good thing. I'm kind of a big fan of being human and, you know, not really against it so much. So what are your thoughts on this, Daniel? Are we okay with humanism? Are we going to accept that as postulates? And as presumably an ex-Buddhist yourself, are you, ha- are you a humanist? Well, the question first, I think, is actually what is an ex-Buddhist, which has been covered a number of times on this podcast, I think. But in case someone has just tuned in and has not been listening extensively to the uh, speculative non-Buddhist material or reading it, um, an ex-Buddhist spelled with an X-Buddhist, not E-X-Buddhist, as in someone who used to be a Buddhist and is now not, um, is very broadly defined. And actually, that's one of the more interesting things to talk about from a certain point of view. And it's kind of basically everybody who is related to Buddhism in some way who doesn't seem to be the speculative non-Buddhists. That might be a bit of a a large uh, definition, Uh, but it includes traditionalists, reformers, uh, people who are big into the orthodoxy, people who, you know, sort of um, turn into a secular thing, people who want to modify and apologize for the tradition. It's sort of this massive catch-all category. That includes some elements that clearly are not that helpful, but also seems to cast aspersions on aspects like reform or interpretation or upgrading or something that might actually be kind of useful, or even the scientific study of uh, Buddhism, all of which I don't think can be entirely objected to. And so it's sort of a they're 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 drawing some firm lines in the sand as much to be inflammatory as to create discussion as to sort of make strong points there's a lot of sort of straw man argument in it they throw out a lot of babies with their bathwater i think they make some interesting points by doing this and certainly have generated controversy but it's uh it's you know the whole ex buddhist concept is the first thing that kind of needs to be looked at so now that you have some idea what we're talking about, if you haven't been following the, the whole ex-Buddhist thing. 
That just let me interrupt. That was very sweet of you to mention that because it is early in the morning. I'm not as lucid as I should be, and it's good to get these basic definitions in. Just one point I would add to what you said is that you know the X I think is a mathematical term in this case, so it could mean anything. Any letter, well, it's any letter of the alphabet, basically. Yeah, anything it's going for it. All of these categories of the alphabet, from R for reformers to um, you know traditionalists, yeah. to T, traditionalists to you know they've got all these. You know, S for scientist. It's 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 sort of a broad thing. You can, it we is, should it link. Is. You should link to what this definition is because they actually have a page where they sort of define what ex Buddhism is yeah. for those who have been blessed with not um, diving deep into this literature. I mean, yeah, for those who yeah, have not yeah. been following along at home. Yeah. Well, you you should probably now give us a nice definition of what you understand to be a non Buddhist. Did you so, manage to figure that out from what you've read? I've sort of tried. So speculative. Someone they're really going to hate me for this. I think the the fact well, that's of part of the fun. Some here, of them they think is. <laughs> ex-Buddhist <laughs> defining speculative non-Buddhism. It's, yeah. it's, it's a good exercise there, so right? Yeah. Speculative non-Buddhism is a very odd mix of traditionalism, right? So there is a sort of a weird reverence for certain aspects of things old. So that's the curiosity about it. Um, Glenn Wallace in particular spent a lot of time diving deep into old texts, learning ancient languages, etc. Tom Pepper is in some ways, in many ways, actually a very old school traditionalist about Buddhism. I'm sure he's not going to enjoy being categorized by me, but that's my read of him for better or for worse. Apologies if I've gotten some of this wrong. And um, I'll just deal with those two and leave off the rest. Um, and so they they have a certain tolerance for vitriolic language. They have a certain tolerance for controversy. They have a certain intolerance for a lot of things that I myself actually don't like a lot. So we're on some similar pages in some ways. We'll get to a bunch of that. Uh, they like taking sort of a deconstructionist, nihilist, sort of post-philosophical, whatever that is, but in some ways very rigorously logical, analytical, and technical, as well as linguistic uh, take on a lot of variations of Buddhism, both traditional and modern variants and how it's come in. And they like to sort of take it apart and criticize aspects of it, often in ways that to me, while I myself use plenty of harsh language, seem to alienate people that could have even been potential allies. They were so vitriolic sometimes and sometimes so opaque with their language that some people who maybe should have been appreciating some of their points a little better didn't always quite get it. Um, and they've uh, yet sometimes done some interesting things with this ability to deconstruct, destroy, trash, tear apart, shred, hyperanalyze um, some things that maybe are worthy of that. And then, you know, the question is what ends up sort of growing in the ashes of what they've created. What little, of the ruin. Of the ruin, right? As it were, the punk band of Glenn Wallace, obviously. So that's sort of like my take on them, for better or for worse, right? Well, that, that was nice. It was a bit like a sort of potted history of, uh, you know, some of the key moments of the, the project. Back to humanism. Sorry, yeah. I apologize for t a long detour there. No, it was good. It was useful. To make sure it was I interesting. oriented people who may not have been keeping up with this conversation. And so... Uh, humanism. Yeah. So humanism, as we were talking about at dinner the other night, and you made the fine point, I'm going to put this back to you, uh, that humanism has its excellent points, taking care of humans and thinking about humans as valuable things, so long as it also considers the rest of life on the planet to whatever degree as a top predator we're able. You didn't actually make that point. I'm adding that on as my retrofitting. 
and recognizing that something in humanism, meaning that we have value, that you should think about the feelings of humans, the value of humans, the worth of humans as humans, does seem to make some kind of sense. And it's sort of, to me, it's interesting to identify it as a postulate that applies to ex-Buddhists, but it's very hard to imagine that SNB kids, you know, the speculative non-Buddhist truly are anti-humanist, right? So it's they sometimes set up these sort of weird dichotomies that they are, are they really on the opposition of that? Because sometimes they set them up as we are the antithesis of ex-Buddhists. They're over there, we're over here, we are the opposite of them, they are the opposite of us. And when you sort of set that up as a, a dichotomy, it's it, as a sort of a strict dichotomy, it's very interesting to then examine, well, to what degree are they actually going there? To what degree are they truly anti-humanist? What degree are they sort of maybe even anti-humans or anti-human thought or anti-society or anti-compassion? It's unlikely that they actually are those things. And so I don't think they are. They seem to have some sort of weird mission of making things better or helping in their own vitriolic, weird sort of punk, you know, inflammatory way. So I will actually bet they are more humanist than they think. And this is sort of a weird line in the sand to kind of get people all excited and arguing and whatever. It's an interesting rhetorical tactic. Um, I find right. it a little bit right. past a certain point. I find it a little bit tedious, like seriously, kids. OK, so anyway, that's me. Okay. All right. I think some of that's interesting and some of it is a slight misreading of this. In fact, if you notice, these are postulates about ex-Buddhists and there isn't an opposition position placed as yet, although we might see that at some point. I think the only thing I would add to what you said is that the anti-humanism as a separate movement is actually quite interesting in terms of what it wants to achieve. And I think it resonates some of your other criticism from the other night that anti-humanism seems fueled by quite a lot of anger about our current situation in relationship to the planet. Yeah, which is reasonable. And the other point I was thinking about as well is that it's interesting sometimes when I study a period of history, so I was looking at uh, empiricism a little bit last night after you were promoting it quite strongly, because mm -hmm. uh, I'd remembered listening to some interesting talks about Hume and the limits of empiricism a couple of years back, but couldn't quite remember what it was that I liked. And it was interesting just listening to uh, a podcast in which it was analysing the, the the fact that empiricists at that time, you in the British tradition that you mentioned, they were so caught up in their need to establish their understanding of the world in opposition to something that existed before. And it's interesting that the more professionally trained or well-read philosopher will often participate in that kind of relationship with thought. Sure. You know, whereas for a layperson like myself, I don't have that baggage. Yes. So, you know, if I look at humanism, for example, we can simplify it down in the way you just did and say, it's understanding the value of a human being in the world and taking that human being as some kind of center of meaning or purpose or value in life. But of course, for those guys, it was doing so in opposition to a worldview in which God was central and giving us absolutely everything. And so, you know, coming out the other end of that for us uh, more pragmatic folks, you know, what are the limits of humanism? They don't seem that complicated after all. Let's, you know, let's include the entire living biosphere. We're probably going to be okay. But let's not lose our ability to recognize our humanity, right? Yes. But one thing, one thing I would say that you might have missed that I think is perhaps one of the more interesting parts of the, the, the SNB project is the non-position. So you rightly said there certainly is some opposition um, within the history of the SMB, and some people are, are more dysfunctional in their opposition to others uh, compared to others. But the non-position is an interesting one. The non-position, which I think might actually be quite present in this trash theory piece, is actually trying to avoid engaging in those kind of dichotomies to see if something new could happen in the middle. 
And in fact, if I'm looking at their stuff here, it's not just saying every ex-Buddhist knows that humanism is true and therefore humanism is crap. <laughs> or we are anti-human. And in fact, that, that, that's something worth looking at. The non-position says, if we're not for and we're not against, then what are we, right? And how do we relate to Buddhist practice in a different way? or in a way that's not in opposition, but not completely enamoured by the practices and therefore caught up in the dysfunctional stuff that I think you also, in your credit, are very, very aware of. Yes. So there is some of that. There's clearly some of that m message of disenchantment, that when one right. becomes disenchanted with these things, or perhaps a little bit disillusioned with these things and their limits, one can then relate to them in a more mature way. And I certainly appreciate that. And in fact, appreciate that a lot. So each of these paradigms I'll put out, again, I'm an ontologically agnostic empirical pragmatist, but the point is to be able to adopt frameworks. Ontological agnosticism also allows a certain creativity to adopt frameworks, to explore them, to see what their uses are. That's the pragmatism. And then to look at experience and say, okay, and as well as empiricism in the other sense, like doing the experiment. I do this thing and this makes things better. I do this thing and it makes things worse. I think about these things this way and something seems to get better. I think about these this way and th things seem to get worse. Again, I have this utilitarian judgment of empiricism in the scientific experiment sense. And so to look at these paradigms and say, how do they help? How do they harm? Can we adopt them? I also have sort of a chaos magic background, which is very into a f f metafluency and fluidity when, with regard to paradigms, to be able to put them on, take them off, see if they're valuable, in what context are they, they valuable, not cling to them too tightly sometimes, but also dive into them hard when that diving in is necessary and then be willing to sort of shed that skin and do something else. So that's the sort of framework I'm coming at this with. But for most applications, humanism, you know, sort of wedded to some sort of scientifically um, as well as compassionately grounded, you know, biosphere-based ecology, plus minus other political and economic considerations, plus minus realities of, you know, um, markets and anyway. But yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, you need all of that to actually try to get to something that you can actually do that's useful and probably more, right? So, yeah, and yeah. some experience and maturity and, and luck and a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you're painting a nice definition of heuristics, basically, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the second one is about idealism. And this is interesting because this actually relates to something you said yesterday. So I'm just going to read this out for folks. Postulate two is that every ex-Buddhist knows that idealism is true. <laughs> That's so scathingly horrible. Isn't it great? <laughs> <laughs> and it says, here, I'm going to read this because they're very, very short. So as the protagonist in Dhammapada 1.1, preceded by mind are phenomena, led by mind, formed by mind. More broadly, I mean idealism in Kant's sense in critique of pure reason for our more knowledgeable listeners out there. If I remove the thinking subject, the whole material world must at once vanish because it is nothing but a phenomenal appearance in the sensibility of ourselves as a subject and a manner of species of representation. Also solipsism, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the outcome of this, right? Does that relate at all to your idea yesterday about the, uh, what was that nice metaphor you used of the mind processing sense data? So you mean the holodeck? There we go, yeah, that's yeah. the word you used. So that's sort of a mind-only way of looking at the thing, which is, again, just one framework that sometimes is useful and sometimes isn't, right? Yeah. It's good to be able to relate to these things when one needs them and then just use another paradigm when one needs something else. Yeah. That all idealism is true is, again, it's from a sort of an intellectual point of view is pretty much as harsh a critique as you can level at another thinker, 
right? That all of their ideas are true or all of their beliefs they believe to be true, true in some sort of grand absolute sense, that they lack nuanced thinking, the ability to question or be curious, the ability to think in shades of gray. I mean, it's it's a certain, it's a real fuck you from a certain point of view to the, the intellectual capacities and sort of metalogic capacities of anybody they're talking about. And so ignoring the extreme, from my point of view, vitriol of that and how unbelievably toxically dismissive that is, <laughs> um, uh, it is true that there is a lot of idealism that people don't question. Okay, yeah. so there is there is the sort of moderate point. There is plenty of idealism that goes unquestioned that just feels comforting as a belief system that people adopt, parrot, you know, the sort of ventriloquistic talk that, that you were you know, mentioning in previous podcasts. Uh, okay, that, that stuff all occurs. Is it true of all ex-Buddhists? Okay, if that's their definition, fine. But you've suddenly narrowed the field to only those people who truly believe every single thing they think, which perhaps such people actually exist and they have no curiosity, but it's a curious straw man to create to then be able to tear down. Okay, I think you get what I'm getting at. Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm looking at it from a range of perspectives as we speak about this. And certainly one attempt at this is to, in a sense, identify the underlying assumptions that may be unquestioned. Right. Sure. And that's certainly uh, true on on on, a, on a many occasions. But you're, of course, if we go back to humanism, uh, not taken as a theoretical moment in history, but as a recognition of the basic humanity of people, you're right that 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 human is often lost in these these pictures that are painted of groups of people. But uh, yes, I mean, one attempt certainly of this project, as far as I understand it, is to recognize the the assumptions that form part of how people are formed into these subjects, right? These ideological forms yes. that are unquestioned. Sure. And that's like holding up a big mirror, isn't it? To the collective that say of Western Buddhists and saying, look at that, you know, yeah. here it is. Except that I wonder if it actually is going to reach anybody because um, people who are big into their beliefs are usually very big into their beliefs, yeah, right? Yeah. And so it's very hard to shake them out of those. Yeah. Um, even the belief that through writing something like that, you might be able to shake someone out of their beliefs. That might be another belief that I'm not sure necessarily is going to hold up to re reality testing a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, it was interesting. I, I got to talk to, say, anti-vaxxers in the emergency department. Oh, right. And interesting. there is no reasoning with them. No. It is, it is impossible. Like, I, I literally think there was never a single person that any amount of conversation ever reached, period. They just became more entrenched. And so I, I, I literally eventually just gave up after, I don't know, 100 times or something. And it was like, this is truly useless talk. It's, it's a useless waste of my time. I can go care for someone who actually might benefit from something else with my time rather than do that. And so I, I don't mean to say that you shouldn't call other people out on their stuff. It's valuable. I do it all the time, right? But I think we all have to recognize if we have a belief and an ideal that somehow that's actually likely to change things, likely to get people out of their Buddhist cults or their other cults or their own, you know, fixed beliefs or their things that for whatever they're getting some value out of, some comfort, some sense of assure, you know, something that makes them feel stable or whole or like they have some understanding, right? I, I think if you're not looking deeper and kind of addressing some of those needs that a, a rigid idealism is filling and you can't figure out a constructive, nurturing way to meet some of those needs of these people, which I'm not sure the SNB kids have always done, then perhaps it's 
fun and you get to wave your flag and I do this too. I get it. I'm, you know, I'm as guilty as anybody and yay, we're right or whatever. But does it actually change things? Does it make a difference practically, pragmatically? I think most of the time it doesn't. And there may be a few people that you reach with it, but I think it's going to be a small audience mm. uh, that co- suddenly comes over to your side and go, oh, yeah, I've been completely full of shit. All my ideals are crazy. Um, by you saying it, I think it usually often happens through some sort of deeper complex disillusionment with something that happens in their tradition, some, you know, guru molests somebody or some there's a financial scandal or, you know, whatever. I think it usually actually takes that kind of thing to shake people out of these sort of fixed dogmas and make them question reality. So unfortunately, it's weird to say that, you know, uh, sex offenders and pedophiles and, you know, embezzlers and drug addicts may serve a more powerful role than your rhetoric kids. But I actually think, believe functionally, that's often true. It's often the case, yeah. Not yeah. to justify their actions, obviously. It's a big mess, but sometimes it does help people yeah. uh, look at their own situations and beliefs through a slightly more critical, open lens. Yeah. The link to anti-vax is interesting because... Um, I recently heard a podcast, again, my memory is really bad this morning. Sorry, folks. But there was a podcast I was listening to quite recently about how you change people's minds. And they carried out a bunch of research on this relatively recently, which was accumulative in terms of uh, prior research that had been carried out. And they were talking about just how difficult it is to change the minds of true believers, which I think many of us knew already, but it was interesting to see that what they attempted to do as well is experiment with different strategies that might be functional. And there's one that came out which seemed to be, it was more effective in something like an extra 7% of the time. So we're not talking big numbers. Well, actually, that might be reasonable numbers. The, The key was to ask very specific types of questions. Okay, so instead of saying, you know, trying to present facts, which I think many of us who have got a bit of experience with this in in teaching or in dealing with people who are fanatical anti-vaxxers, I have a friend who's one and (laughs) facts don't work. (laughs) And I can confirm that in my situation, you've obviously got far more experience as you just told us. But they said that doesn't work in, in most cases of strong belief. So that kind of confirms your point. But there are certain types of questions which seem to be the most effective form. I will get those up and we might talk about that in a future podcast episode with another guest. But Nice. You know, as somebody who got a lot of benefit from the SMB and still does, I think, I think you said, used a great word before, which was the uh, disenchantment. You might be surprised at how many X, as in EX Buddhists, there are who've been sort of left out in the wilderness. Oh, I know. You Plenty know? of them, actually. Many of them. Yeah. And um, because they've gone quite far in the process of disenchantment, they, they're kind of, some of them are floundering and they obviously need some kind of practice. And I have two two thoughts about that. Uh, the first is that I think you might be right that some of the rhetoric at the SMB pushed certain folks away who would have benefited still from some sort of self-care, self-maintenance um, in terms of practice, you know, meditation or movement or whatnot. And, and perhaps they were flung out so fully from the Buddhist enterprise that they kind of did lose everything. Um, so that's one thing. And I know that as well that, you know, th- these or kind other of questions practices in general. Or, I mean, yeah, so sure. the, the thing is, this sort of mode of critique might not just inoculate you against, you know, regular Buddhist meditation practice using the vaccine. Again, it might yeah. uh, inoculate you against all kinds of practice that yeah. are based on sort of ancient tradition or a philosophy or an ideal, yeah. because it's very easy for some people to get lost in the loop of nihilism and it gets darker and more meaningless and more reductionist. And yes, you can tear things apart and you get 
sort of weirdly pathologically fascinated with your own ability in the mind's, the intellect's cutting ability to tear things to shreds, which it does have that capacity. And that can be a revelation for some people, but also a real sort of spirally trap. Mm. And yeah, it can be. So, And that leads us nicely on to the New Age apocalypse. Oh. <laughs> Didn't take us too long to and get about there. about darn time. Yeah. And in fact, I think this is intimately related to the whole idea of disenchantment, because one thing that keeps so many people going is the idea that things will get better, right? Yes. And we are in an age in which, you know, we are facing the limits of progress, or at least our dreams of progress, as we see the environment going through what it's going through and the collapse of the American empire, the rise of China, the dissolution of Europe, the, the rise of the far right, just, just to mention a few happy things taking place currently. Um, the New Age apocalypse, I'll read you this very, very, very quickly. It's obviously connected to the New Age more broadly, and that's certainly something that's worth critiquing. Um, here we are, postulate three. This entails a cluster of beliefs about the end of the current world and the coming of a new world. Decisive to this formulation is the fact that the new world comes into being not through collective social action or through radical non-reformist operations on material structure, that is doing real things in the real world, but rather through some sort of shifting consciousness or through collective cosmic awareness. This is nice, isn't it? I, I kind of like this. I think this is yeah. one of their better critiques in terms of, you know, really getting to the heart of, of the, the most dysfunctional manifestation of Western Buddhism, which is very closely tied to the New Age thought. Sure. And actually, there was a a, um, a podcast that I did with Buddha at the gas pump, Okay, uh, Rick Archer. And we talked a lot about this, actually, because he's very much a boomer and very much sort of has this view and articulated this view. And I'm very much Gen X. I got to see what the hippies did get trashed by Reagan and then Bush and then Clinton and then Bush and then everybody else. And they continue to sort of roll back a lot of things that I would consider reasonable progress, environmental regulation, you know, green initiatives, social justice, blah, blah, blah. And so I very much have no illusions that empires fall, that dreams get crushed, that we all die. Um, and I'm very much sort of in the, I'm sort of an unapologetic apologetic apocalypticist in some ways. I think it's going to be a low, <laughs> slow, torturous, painful, very predictable, nothing special. We saw it coming. It happened. It was just like we thought it would be. You know, nothing, nothing weird about my apocalyptic views. They're relatively, they're becoming relatively mainstream these days. In fact, um, so as a Gen Xer, that's definitely my view. I assume the institutions will fail. I believe I'm watching them fail now. I believe that decency and common sense and reasonable collective action are likely to fail. Not that we shouldn't try. We should try. I still try. Whatever. Um, as a futile gesture of absurdity and vanity as we all, you know, face crumbling to dust. Um, so just so my vision on this is clear, but it's interesting. I was actually raised by um, some people who very much sort of have that view of progress, both in very different ways. My mother, very much new age, we are going to be saved by the aliens from the nuclear apocalypse and the lighting of the Van Allen radiation belts and, and that kind of stuff. That's sort of nice. her, her view, like that was my mom. And my dad is very much sort of old school. No, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. No, like the institutions will hold. He's from that generation. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's a silent and he really has trust and faith in, in these things and thinks, well, reasonable people will work this out. And I'm, I actually think that's unlikely to be true, though I would love to be proven wrong on this. That would be delightful for me. I don't hold to that view. If I, you know, you know, history makes me wrong, I will be so ecstatic that I was wrong. <laughs> 
Um, and so uh, coming from my point of view, I, I look at that and I think it's much more of a critique of a sort of a boomery and pre-boomer generation. And I don't see a lot of people in, in Gen X that really hold that in the same kind of way they do. Mm. It happens. It's mm-hmm. there. You know, I have some new age friends who are sort of my age or a little younger. And I don't think there are that many millennials that are really thinking, yeah, this is all going to work out. The progress is going to go up. We're going to have the same opportunities our parents did. We're going to inherit the same world they did. And I think when you start talking about teenagers these days, I really get the sense they see the writing on the wall and they know this is becoming a, a meme, a, 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 a theme, a, a recurring uh, cultural factor that's sort of moving through society. And so what's interesting is if the postulate is all ex-Buddhists think this, then I actually think you've just excluded a tremendous number of people you wanted to call ex-Buddhists from your definition, because I, I just am not seeing it in, in people much younger than myself, um, or even plenty of people my age. I, actually, um, you know, I know people who are 20 years, 30 years my senior, who also see the writing on the wall and think, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, this is going to be a mess. Glad we're out of here. See you. Bye. Y'all have fun. You're right. There's a lot of that going on here in Italy, too. And it's, uh, it's, it's quite sad, actually. <laughs> You know, it's weird. It's weird to hear it because it's, um, I don't know, on the one hand, you know, as, as a parent, again, I do mention this, but it does make you have to make certain kinds of commitment to the world that you can't avoid, you know, because you know your offspring are following. But I mean, I'm, I'm even shocked sometimes and disappointed when I hear some of the parents of other kids in my son's class make exactly that statement. Yeah, well, aren't my kids are going to suffer and I feel bad for them, but I won't be here. So there you go. Yes. It's like, what the fuck? Seriously, yeah. that's your approach? Well, actually, that clearly is reflected in a large number of political decisions, decisions yeah. by the generation that's in power and has the wealth, yeah. uh, the boomers and the silence, right? That they still yeah. have most of the power and wealth and at this I, I point. I think they're yeah. still struggling, actually, with that. They, they haven't quite come to terms with that loss. Yes. You know, right. And so, I, I, you know, I'm slightly um, reluctant to get into projecting again onto our political class, that kind of cynicism. I think they're just humans like us. And there are some bad dudes out there doing stuff. And of course, I'm talking here for American listeners about global politics. But in Europe, what I've seen in the last 10 to 15 years is is kind of overwhelm shock and an inability to quite comprehend what they have to deal with from the political class. Yes. And I think you're seeing that in Theresa May. You're seeing that in the Italian government. And um it's it's kind of weird, you know. It's not like when I was younger. Part of the the narrative about the world going in one way or another was a shift um, from that kind of new age desire for this perfect world to manifest to the conspiracy theory stuff. So in my early twenties, um, I remember I grew up with a new age mother like you, actually. So we share that. I'm a bit younger than you, but I'm in Generation X, and I remember in my early twenties a certain a, an emergent cynicism that coupled with the conspiracy theories of the day that we see linked to you know the anti vaxxers and the rest of them as well. And I think we're in a kind of collective struggle with the consequences of what it means to lose hope about the future. Yes. And I think you might be right in some of your critique there about the New Age apocalypse. And I wonder if it's going to to shift with this younger uh, generation towards a sort of mass form of pessimism. And I'm certainly seeing that in many of the high school students I teach. So that resonates with what you said. They're very pessimistic about the future. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I do with them, because I, I also teach critical thinking uh, classes, is that, you know, I try and get them to inhabit different perspectives and see if they can find some kind of constructive way of looking at the future that doesn't get caught up in, you know, the, the overly idealistic or the overly 
pessimistic view because the practical consequences of that are that you know if you if you if you hit these young guys with that weight of oppression it actually becomes a form of oppression they have no like emotional um, resources with which to invest at least in trying to do their part for making the world a better place and I think that the younger generation my son's age are really being inspired by this Greta Thun- Thunberg girl if you know about her I saw some tweets about her yes yeah she's interesting because she's got like I mean she, she's mildly autistic if I remember correctly which means you know you can't get a lot of read off, off of her but she's got a sort of fierce pragmatism which is wonderful which I think is quite stoic and I think it's one of those resources that the sort of post-millennial uh, generation actually need you know this younger generation they need some kind of fire yes. some kind of motivation to actually help them get through the loss of hope that they're that they're seeing in their parents and everybody else well, I actually think that they're going to need to do what the greatest generation did. So it's been a long time since people have been called on and the, and the generation one or two before them. So the great institutions that we're currently seeing uh, struggling uh, to adapt a view that's helpful or adapt to the changes that are currently occurring or the challenges they're facing, um, those institutions, I think, need to be rebuilt. The skills needed to rebuild institutions that can adapt rapidly to change and to have that skillfully transition from older institutions and structures, uh, corporate structures, governmental structures. The skills needed to do that are numerous and complicated. And if we're not teaching them that, then we're not giving them anything useful, right? And so I think you need more than just to protect them from cynicism. Uh, because I myself was a cynical youth and somehow I ended up okay. And a lot of my friends were as well, were black, you know, screamed obscenities, uh, made uh, very angry music. Somehow we were okay. And so I don't want to condescend to younger generations, say they can't handle anger, they can't handle cynicism. We did. Somehow we were all right, sort of, I guess. But I would couple that anger and cynicism with real tools. How do you rebuild institutions? How do you rebuild governmental structures? How do you rebuild corporate structures to align them with longer-term planetary goals? That's what we actually need to teach these people. We need to teach them careful rhetoric and logic. We need to teach them communication skills. And we would would need to do this quickly. I mean, because that's the skills they need. Mm -hmm. And without those skills, right? Because the boomers in the silence aren't going to do it. They're out of here. They were coasting on what was kind of built before them right? They thought it would all hold. It isn't, right? Um, Gen X, there are not enough of us, right? There's At least in the US, there's only 40 million Gen Xers. There's like 70 million boomers, 70 million uh, at least plus um, millennials. Uh, we have some power. We can lend some help to that. But the people who are really going to feel the consequences of this, you know, because we're older, so sure, how to rebuild institutions, right? A lot of people have sort of forgotten this. How do you build, a, you know, an insurance industry? How do you build a financial industry? How do you build corporate regulations? I mean, these are sort of complicated, tedious, you know, things. How do you retool, uh, you know, the legislature? I don't mean to advocate for revolution, but clearly I'm watching my the legislative body and the, the checks and balances in my country just fail. All of the safeguards are falling Um, And so those structures are clearly not adequate to the task and to constructively in a way that's not dangerous or destabilizing or too threatening to the old guard to have the military simply come in and grab control, which is what they usually do when things start going to heck in a handbasket. That's the likely endgame scenario um, if you don't handle these things very well. Um, How do you rebuild institutions or restructure institutions in a way that can actually handle change? 
and go forward in a way that's meaningful. And that's the skill set everybody's needing. It's curiously, I think, rather than, you know, um, how to move and type really fast with your thumbs, that might be a small part of it. But I think we need a lot more than that. Um, yeah. The collective waves of cynicism, the, the, the way I tend to think about it is it leads to inaction. I mean, you know, often. But of course, um, it doesn't have to. Right. And so I would say, yes, cynicism. Heck yeah, yeah cynicism. Yeah. Heck yeah, anger. Yeah. Right. Because there's a lot of power in that. Too, for sure, yeah. But combined it with, okay, here's how you channel that that might lead to something useful yeah, for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also because, I mean, again, thinking about terms, um, when I see this adult generation who are primarily Generation X, as in this case in Europe, the cynicism leads to inaction, right? Resignation. Mm-hmm. And I think those are two qualities that are, are obstacles to motivating oneself, but also motivating this younger generation. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, the restructuring of, of institutions is is a huge topic. It's not the topic we're going to be talking about here. But yeah, I mean, what, what gives people the resources to find the strength to keep going with this kind of stuff as well? Because there's a certain degree of commitment to the world as well. One of the, I think one of the consequences of the, the new age apocalypse or, or new age pessimism of some form is that, uh, it tends to abstract everything out. And as you were describing, actually what we need is we need social practices, right? We need engagement with social structures in terms of the government, in terms of institutions, in terms of corporations and the health industry. And certainly there's been a lot of dismantling of that, but, to what degree will Postulate 4 be relevant here? Uh, Postulate 4 says, Every ex-Buddhist knows that yogic practice is essential. Is it going to be essential in facing the, cha- the challenges ahead of us? Well, if we combined it with the previous one, some people might believe that meditation is enough. Uh, like the guy on uh, Buddha at the gas pump. Was that the one? <laughs> yeah. Um, this postulate follows from the previous one. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I did read that at some point, folks. Uh, by yogic practice, I mean a discipline that entails inner contemplation of some sort. Although the ex-Buddhist canonical record uh, has instances where people became awakened in conversation with the protagonist, the Western Buddhism image of practice dogmatically holds meditation as the sole means of ultimate attainment. So as somebody who's very dedicated to yogic practice, Daniel, what do you think about that? I think they are partly right, but I'm not sure it's as helpful to draw that distinction. So to say that it's the only way that people wake up. No, I know people, myself, um, friends of mine uh, who have woken up in all kinds of interesting circumstances to various degrees, uh, some of which had no uh, formal meditative practice and sort of the technical I'm sitting in a you know tradition kind of sense. But they may have been often usually were doing something that required some high degree of skill concentration, although not all of them. And a few examples known in uh, you know last hundred years of people who woke up as kids uh, doing nothing resembling contemplative anything. And I know plenty of people have had mystical experiences and and transformations of various kinds that uh, it's very hard to track back exactly you know why they happen. We can hand wave and say karma. That said, I don't know that that postulate is so helpful because I actually do believe the experiment kind of has been done and you're way more likely to develop the mental skills and perceptual abilities if you specifically train in those kinds of ways, just like there are the occasional genius people who can just sit down and play the piano or whatever, like, you know, their interesting, quirky talent. But for most people, you need to study piano to become a good piano player. And the same with the mind. The mind is a trainable thing. And if you train it to perceive well, to be clear, to cultivate in certain skillful qualities, it's more likely those qualities will arise. I know some extremely concentrated, stable, equanimous, tranquil, wise, good people 
who never formally practiced any of those things. It's true. But like the odds are it's <laughs> that if you train in those things, you will likely get better at them. That's just what happens with practice. So I think it's a little bit of a, again, these sort of black and white straw man arguments for the sake of conversation that are kind of missing this more nuanced middle ground. But anyway. Yeah. And if I'm going to be generous to a critique of this position, I mean, obviously, if you're if you're training or committed to some kind of long-term practice that has this yogic quality, I mean, conversation generally is part of that. If you're, if you're working within a group in the way that you are, I mean, you described your own experience of retreat, right? There's conversation taking place, there's reflection, there's sharing of information and so forth. So yeah, you're right. I mean, this is a, a slightly abstracted out ideal of the current situation. But uh, yeah, if we take it again as, as a sort of... Um, an axiomatic principle that may limit the possibility of certain types of imaginative or heuristic engagement with these materials. I think it could be useful from that perspective, but uh, let's move on. You know, we yes. haven't got a lot of time. True. And I would, I would at least, we're not going to get to these practices, but let's see if we can finish up the postulates. And number five, every ex-Buddhist knows that what the protagonist meant by anatman was that there is in fact an atman. This one, I, I think you're going to have something to say. There is an interesting point here, but I want to, I want to see what you, you think about it all. The protagonist's greatest gift for the ex-Buddhist is the reassurance that one is not obligated to take their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors all too seriously, since ultimately they are not self, and therefore not the ex-Buddhist's responsibility to attempt to investigate and understand. <laughs> well, that's a really scathing shadow side that I guess can occur from a sort of nihilistic, if you take, um, you know, no self, anatman, to have that sort of cynical nihilism, it all doesn't matter or whatever. Okay, sure, there are a few people who drift into that. And it is plenty true that plenty of meditative traditions that claim to be all about emptiness then go on sell teachings of selves, stable all grounds, luminous grounds of consciousness, true Buddha nature that is your home, all of these things, right? And so they, they sell those like used car salesmen. And so that's one of the things I myself actually rag against a lot. And yet I sometimes get lobbed into the category of ex-Buddhists. This is one of the ones that really pisses me off when they say, oh, he's secretly selling, um, you know, the true self. Uh, actually, I'm 100% not doing that and quite sure that that is one of the golden chains and traps. This is my own bias. and I'm going to really piss off a bunch of people here. But I look at the Mahayana Sutrists and I think half of them got caught in this golden chain. Right. And that's a pretty scathing critique of an entire tradition. Okay, I apologize. That was like I just lobbed, you know, a serious grenade um, into the ballroom or whatever. But I think they're right that a lot of people are sort of buying, I will get to be a true self that's happy in nirvana and, and have a refuge and a transcendent refuge and a glowing, glowing luminous Buddha super space or whatever. And that's going to be my equivalent of heaven that sort of took the place of my childhood, you know, Christian promises or whatever. Yeah, no, that definitely Sounds happens. Cute. It's really cute, and it's true that a lot of that occurs. But is it true of all the people they're lobbing their criticisms at? No. And I think when they, again, they take some of us that could have been their allies and take what we say and twist it to the opposite of what we said and then sort of get mad at us about that. I really just don't think they're helping their cause um, in that kind of way. So, yeah, I think you picked up on, on some of the nice points there actually about how this actually takes place. Yeah. Um, yeah, the one point I think is interesting that I hadn't thought about so much in the past is that that kind of couples again with 
with some of the previous points when it is carried out dysfunctionally, which is it does allow for a sort of excuse for disengagement from the material reality in which we find ourselves and that we were talking about before. So in, in a sense, it, it could actually end up becoming a sort of reverse form of cynicism, right? Sure. Happy cynicism. Well, yes. I just don't have to bother engaging with yeah, the world. Yeah. You are right that there is a tension, though, in contemporary Western Buddhism about this issue, and it hasn't yes. actually been thought about, no, it hasn't discussed thought enough about critically. It, a lot. it splits yeah. whole traditions. This is what splits Vedanta from Buddhism. This is what splits literally half of the Buddhist traditions against the other half. Yeah. Uh, like, this is what splits whole sects of the Mahayana. Is there an all ground? Is there a mind? Is there a not mind? Yeah. My emptiness is the, is the more stable, better, more pure version of your emptiness, which is a reification of emptiness as a thing. I mean, like, th- these debates are like, you know, two, two plus thousand years old, right? And so um, I just want to say uh, the must engage with the world as an ideal. I'm going to actually push back against that one. Okay. So I do not think it is everybody's, you know, job, thou shalt engage with the world in a creative way based on our ideals of engagement or anything like that. I think we have to be incredibly careful with that. The sort of mage versus sage debates, as I call them, mage being I will use my grand magical power to and vision and understanding and intellect to change the world and my perfect vision of it. And sage meaning I'm going to wander off out through the gate and never be seen again and go, you know, live eating, you know, you know, plants in the jungle or whatever. You know, I actually think that's a reasonable lifestyle choice. I I don't (laughs) think everybody has to certainly be a a cultural defense warrior and an eco warrior. Every single person, you know, just because I happen to have at the moment be in that kind of phase, I get the pull of, you know, the sort of a mage phase. I get the pull of sage, right? I get the pull of um, Voltaire and Candide. You know, this world is a complete crazy crap show of greedy assholes fucking everything up, excuse my language, but, um, you know, that isn't, and we should just find a few friends in a little place and cultivate our own garden. That's not entirely nuts. And that's what I think a lot of people do. Now, it's not that I think that that always meets with all of my ideals, but I get it. And I don't want to say that I'm thinking that every single person should fall on a certain spectrum of action or paradigm with regard to this. I'm not going to take my view and sort of maniacally force everybody into my camp or anything like that. Does that make sense? I don't think that's uh, that helpful. Yeah. And the people, and I myself have actually gotten a tremendous amount of benefit from people who did retreat from the world, studied these things deeply, and then taught a few people what they had studied in deep contemplation, not engaged with most of the world. And yeah. so I'm incredibly grateful for them and would not for a second want to denigrate the unbelievable gifts that have come out of the tradition that stays apart from the madness, right? And just goes deeply into these things and preserves these things as living traditions. So anyway, sorry for my rant, but... No, no, I think it was a useful one, actually. And I think we could make a a link to just one point I'd add to the the, the previous point you made. One of the questions, you know, we come back to is the question of ethics in its broadest sense, right? What do we do and what must we do? And then what should we do? Those questions Mm. come into play. And and I think you're right. There's something I actually reflect on as well, because I think one of the I, one of the products of like the new age apocalypse is that you can become, you know, uh, somebody engaged in trying to proselytize what others should do, right? Because you're, you're captured by an idea that the world, if it's going to be better, well, it has to be better. And then we all need to be doing these things. And I'm going to tell you what to do. Right. We should all worship the giant crystal spirit that will transmogrify us into the perfect illuminated godhead or, or something. whatever. Yeah. Or if you're a conspiracy theorist, you know, we have to take down the person X or, or drift into that kind of sure. Illuminati, you know, right. bad thinking. Yeah. I think what's interesting is to take some of what you've just said, which, you know, I generally agree with and expand it out. So, I mean, one of the 
I think one of the ways that contemporary Western Buddhists would benefit in terms of talking about this fascinating issue of, of is there like an essential something that's liberated or is there nothing, right? There's an Atman, Atman sort of division is actually to look at other kinds of thought that come from outside Buddhism. I think one of the reasons, one of the ways it would be uh, enriched, and this is one of our previous guests talk about this, uh, William Edelglass, who's uh, a philosopher and also teaches Eastern philosophy, and he had a lot of interesting to say things to say on Nagarjuna. But one of the points he said is that a lot of Buddhist philosophy is kind of frozen, it hasn't developed that much. And in his view, what becomes interesting, and I, I think Andrew, uh, what's his name, Garfield, another scholar would probably make the same point is that you know westerners would benefit from actually thinking about anatman and atman more broadly within the buddhist context but also looking at other philosophical ideas and then coupling them to some of the science because otherwise what happens is so many buddhists they have a, a an idea about what the truth is based on doctrine they'll look at quantum physics they'll look at science and they'll say right oh i found a bit that proves that my sect or my tradition is right and what would be more useful is actually if they engage with some philosophical tools, right, so they can actually get better at questioning some of these ideas and not be so tied to having to defend their own tradition. But also oh, deeply exploring them. So I think part oh, I agree. of the problem I think that's is... that's the benefit, if they were to do both together, right? Yeah. So I think questioning is in interesting in the concept of deep exploration. Like there's sort of the armchair philosophical questioner, and then there's the person who does months and months of deep you know, meditation practice, not to put out the ideal of the yogi, but they are the people who are more likely to come to some interesting answers on this stuff, just in terms of probability, I believe, most of the time. And so a lot of people sort of either get lost in the one or the other. They either, you know, and the sort of philosopher, scholar, practitioner, questioner, yet, you know, per person who's sufficiently cynical and yet sufficiently motivated to actually do the experiments and see what happens, that's a rare combination. And those are the people who I think are most likely to come to really skillful answers with regard to this, you know, and to sort of have all of those qualities um, and to not just be the armchair skeptic, but the deep, okay, I'm going to go do the practices. Because again, the, this is a practicing tradition, at least Buddhism was, is. And so you go do these things and you see what happens. And then there are predictable pitfalls and predictable traps, one of which is a sense of a stable self, which you can find the Buddha very explicitly saying, no, you know, you know, boundless consciousness is not a self. It is not an I, it is not a mind, it is not a stable thing. You know, refuting this explicitly. And, and you can watch your friends, practitioners, and yourself actually fall into these traps. And then hopefully, if you practice better, fall out of them. And so I think that's more where the rubber meets the road. And the intellectual philosophical discussions are not nearly as interesting to me as the discussions with real people who are actually sorting this out for themselves and their own experience and going deep with powerful concentration and the powerful support of powerful techniques uh, with good friends who are sharing this interesting journey. So that's just my take on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, two couple of points there. I think we could also view, though, if we uh, accept the idea that awakening can also take place through conversation and other means. Sure. That, um, you know, for some of our intellectuals, they won't obviously only be engaged in abstract thought, right? There'll be the application of that thought to their own lives and some kind of awakenings taking place there too. Hopefully. Some folks, yeah, hopefully. But we could say that back to these uh, sages wandering off in the woods. We, we hope <laughs> sure, for them too, right? Sure. Um, but, you know, our time is running out, Daniel, and I want to respect your your time limits. I've uh, got about uh, five more minutes. We've got about five more minutes. and We've got two left. Let's go fast. So th let's see what we can do. Um, 
Number eight is postulate eight. Every ex-Buddhist knows that an authoritative teacher is required. Uh, number seven, every ex-Buddhist in the West knows that life is fundamentally good. Well, we kind of, <laughs> we kind of just showed that that's, you don't believe that. Yeah, I do not believe life is fundamentally good necessarily. Uh, I'm, I'm, let's stop, let's stop, okay? Because we, we talked about that. Way with and Uncle I, Sid I, on that one. Yeah, I think we can tie number six and number eight together. Number six links back to part of our conversation yesterday and will be an open door. Um, but maybe you have something else to say about postulate eight. Postulate six, every ex-Buddhist knows that there is a realm of existence called direct experience, which is ontologically separable. Indeed, fundamentally distinct from the unfortunate human mental milieu containing thoughts, cravings, conceptual proliferation, identity, ideology, social practice, etc. When all else fails or when one is in doubt, one can always count on direct experience to provide a neutral anchor or refuge. I'm going to pause there because I think that's the most interesting point. Wow, that actually could be a whole podcast. Yeah, it could. The notion of refuge in this sort of stable, reified thing called direct experience is incredibly problematic. The wisdom comes when there's not the grasping of it, the stabilizing of it, the reifying of it, uh, the um, perceptual uh, unclarity that uh, makes it seem like a stable thing. The notion of pitting thought or suffering against direct experience um, is also incredibly problematic. Obviously, it's we learn about suffering, instability, insecurity, emptiness, and all those wonderful things through the moment-to-moment changing and utter instability and transience of experience. To ontologically reify direct experience um, is useful in certain practice contexts, but obviously completely useless in plenty of others that require the intellect to be able to operate on things in some ways, not that thought can't be directly experienced. So I think part of the problem with these things is a lot of people who write these sorts of things aren't noticing that all thoughts occur as sensations in direct experience now. So it is all pain, all joy, all emotions, all feelings, obviously, are what part of direct experience is about. And so it is true, this sort of as a, an ideal direct experience sometimes does become this thing that will take me away from the pain of the world, when obviously that pain is something you were experiencing, so it's direct experience, right? And so it's, anyway, it's obviously a relatively immature way of relating to practice that clearly happens, right? And so you see all these, you know, magazine covers touting mindfulness, and the person usually in her mid-30s with leotard and pretty but not too pretty sitting on cushion you know looking incredibly serene and peaceful and so that kind of uh thing is clearly sold as this is direct experience this is your stable tranquil refuge well clearly anybody who's ever sat for five minutes knows that sitting is painful complicated disturbing uh you know irritating uh yes can involve some pleasant experiences but obviously can be very challenging so anyway obviously they're making an interesting point again through sort of extreme dichotomy and straw man arguments but it's 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 valid if you moderate it a little bit all right, good. And we are really running out of time. So look, Daniel, um, we kind of got through the postulates to some degree. And it was an entertaining was discussion. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. I mean, you know, you're leaving now. But what do you think? Would you like to do maybe uh, a Skype chat at some point just to finish off the other half? I would love to. That would be All delightful. Right. Good. We'll do that then. And for listeners hearing this, you've got that to look forward to. And if you want to throw in some comments, um, if you want to 
Uh, You know what we should do just to tie this up then? If you're going to write in on any comments about Daniel or I, please do so in a very nice, pleasant manner. (laughs) (laughs) Because we've been so nice to everybody, obviously. Absolutely. We will be deeply offended if you say harsh words. But (laughs) All right, some people will get that insider (laughs) joke. But um, if you'd like to add comments, thoughts, feel free to do so. Daniel and I will tackle some of the practice points developed in the second part of Trash Theory. In the meantime, go and read it over at the SMB blog. It's, It's perfectly accessible, as you just heard. Get involved if you'd like to, or, or let us know, you know, where, where we're going wrong. I always enjoy that kind of stuff. And please note that I really don't get offended, so you can write harsh stuff if you like, but just try and be constructive at least so I can get some benefit from your comments. Daniel, thank you for your time. Thank mate. you so was, much for uh, yours. It was good to chat, and uh, listeners now have something to look forward to that's not the cover of a glossy Buddhist magazine. Bye. Bye for now.